welcome to my dad's podcast. My blackest fan is national. Follow him on Instagram. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to my blackest transnational. My name is Dr. Kalechi Bay Lamberts, and you're listening to another episode. Yes, I know it took me a while to drop another one, but we're finally here. In today's episode, we'll be talking about mental health. We'll be talking about specifically stress um, and the different types of stressors that may occur both in the African immigrant population and also in the African American population. Another cool thing about today's episode is that we'll be having a special guest. This will be our first interview ever on My Black is Transnational. We talk about a topic that I know a lot of people are very interested in. But first and foremost, we got to go through the formalities. Please make sure to check out the podcast on all platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, TuneIn. You can check it out on Anchor FM, which is our umbrella, umbrella station, so to speak. Uh, please make sure to follow me on Instagram, Black Transnational underscore. Um, rate, review the podcast. Please subscribe. We have tons of content that we're building on and moving forward through the winter. Uh, it's super cold up here, but through this winter, we're hoping to drop a lot of episodes talking about different types of issues related to the transnational or the budding transnational community and specifically the growing, ever-growing dynamic Black population. So today's guest is a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, we go way back to when we were teenagers. <laughs> I'm going to say the teenage years. Uh, even going through undergrad as well. Um, her name is Mrs. Latifa Kabiru, and she's currently a doctoral candidate at Loyola University in Chicago, and she's doing a lot of fascinating work, uh, intriguing work, based on a topic that we don't talk about, which is stress in the immigrant population. Um, She's focusing on specifically acculturated stress, and she does race-related stress. So she's doing a lot of work as far as comparing the, the perceived acculturated stress in the African immigrant community versus the African American community and how people identify themselves, how they perceive stress, how they deal with it based upon their cultural identities and how they construct it um, related to their, their backgrounds and their, their cultural upbringing. Um, so this interview, we cover up a lot of topics. We talk about you know, the transnational experience, the African immigrant experience, and just how people deal with race um, in the United States and compared to abroad. Uh, we really get into a lot of interesting topics. And if you happen to hear something that you like and you want to drop some feedback, please don't hesitate to send an email out to me, kalechi.lamberts at gmail.com, or you can shoot me some feedback on Instagram at Black Transnational underscore, as I repeated. You can also, if you have the Anchor FM app, you can leave a voice message. That's a really cool feature that I really want some of my listeners to uh, continue to use, which is to leave a message. Um, there's a feature where you can just leave a voice message for me responding to any of the things that we talked about throughout this show. So I think it should be really fun. I think you're going to really enjoy everything that we talked about. And we're going to dive into this interview right now. Today we'll be having our special, we actually not will be having, we actually do have our special guest in our first interview ever, 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 
soon to be Dr. Latifa <laughs> Kabiru Alhamdulillah. Salam alaikum, my sister. How you doing? <laughs> yes, so welcome doing? to the show. And man, I just want to let you know how excited I am to be here. I know we've had major conversations about issues in the African immigrant community, the transnational community, and stress and all that. And I'm, you know, I said, yo, I want I want to get you to be able to talk some way, somehow about these issues and put it out there. And I'm glad that you just took the time to be able to join us on this show um, and, and really just talk about what you do. So thank you for um, joining certainly, us. Certainly. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad that you, were, you called me because this is a pa- topic that I'm very passionate about. So I'm glad that I'm able to, you know, just shop my two cents. Yeah. I'm also very impressed with the work that you're doing. So I'm excited to be a part of this. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm very much obliged. Um, so please, Share with us. Let us know what, what are you what are you interested in? What's your research work about? I know we'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So just generally speaking, I'm in the mental health field. I'm in I'm a, I'm a PhD student in the counseling psychology program at Loyola. So I have a master's in clinical psychology, and I'm a licensed therapist. So I'm generally just interested in mental health and suicide prevention for of all people. I'm especially interested in mental health and suicide prevention for um, ethnic minorities and African immigrants. Um, I think there's not a lot of research, not a, not a lot of work done on African and mental health in general, and then let alone African immigrants in the United States and mental health. So that's a topic that I'm very passionate about. Um, I'm also very passionate about just debunking what it means to have to, to be mentally healthy or mental or what mental well-being means. You know, when you hear mental health, people start thinking or you try to say I'm crazy, or I don't want to kill myself, or I was right. off my mind. And there's more to it than that. Mental health also involves being happy, having joy, being stress-free, or managing stress well, or being anxious and managing anxiety well. So just hopeful about, you know, getting debunking myths around mental health and getting people um, to be more literate about mental health is what I'm really passionate about. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned one of the things um, that you're trying to do is debunk that that stigma that exists, mm-hmm. especially um, in our communities, when it talks when it, when we talk about mental health. So, what do you think is? How do you think mental health, I should say, is perceived in specifically in these racial ethnic minority groups, specifically the African immigrant community? So, mm-hmm. how do you think mental health Wait. is perceived? Yeah, when they think of mental health, they think of someone who's psychotic, someone who is mad. Mm. Someone who doesn't have, who is not, you know, aware of their surroundings, who's not aware of their selves. They think of someone who wants to kill themselves or someone, you know, who is not present, who is not mindful, who is not attentive to their their physical space. When mental health is just much, much, much more than that, even just being happy is an indication of mental health. Just having positive attitude, positive vibes is an indication of mental health. Not being anxious, managing stress well, like I mentioned earlier, all includes mental health. So people don't understand that mental health is beyond mental illness. There's mm-hmm. also like the wellness and health part of it mm-hmm. that we tend to forget about. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I do think that sometimes we tend to overlook the wellness and the being healthy and promoting positive mental health in this particular community. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the things that you said was the word mod, right? And to be mod, not mad. I think sometimes when we talk about the in, in this in the African American community or even in the American community period, we use the word mad and we think about someone that's frustrated or agitated. But in mm-hmm. you know, in the motherland, you use the word mod. That means that person is has lost it, that person is crazy, and that person tends to be perceived as someone that you stay away from. 
Um, yes. Why is it that we don't, as Africans, we don't tend to want to allocate or invest any type of time, resources, or effort to people who are considered that? What do you think is the cause of this madness? I think just our understanding of what it means to of how the the person acquired or that condition. Hmm. I remember, you know, when I was very little, I remember this very clearly. I was in Nigeria. But I must have been like maybe seven or eight. And I was walking down the street and there was a mad person walking. Hmm. And people just like pointed and laughed at that person. And in hindsight, I can think about it as, you know, that person was psychotic. Hmm. And that person could have been helped just with some medication or just a change in their surroundings or with some therapy. I think it's also what we attribute that madness to be. Mm-hmm. I know for a lot of our African folks, we think of someone being possessed or being spiritually um, misguided, you know, the Babala will have done something to him. Right. So I, I think that that's the foundations of, that, that really influenced how people, Africans, understand mental health in general. They don't think of it as something that can be fixed um, or something that can be attended to because when we're talking about psychosis and those kinds of mental illnesses, People think that, you know, you're just being possessed. The spirits have gotten to you. Or think about it from a religious or spirituality perspective versus something that's biological or psychological in nature. I think once we start to shift our understanding of how those um, illnesses were acquired or how that person came to um, meet the criteria for those diagnoses, we can start to understand that there are options to treatment. Now, I say that cautiously because I know that Many of our people believe that people can be possessed spiritually or religiously. Yeah, I was going to so jump in on that. I don't want to discount yeah. that, but there's also the reality that there's a psychological or biological piece to it. Yeah. And it's funny that you brought it because I was going to jump in, especially on the spiritual part, because, you know, when I was, when you were just talking about your experience in Nigeria, um, you know, we just got back, my wife and I just got back from Nigeria in December, and it was interesting. We were in the village. And I was sitting there, one of our, you know, relatives was, um, you know, considered, you know, he, he was considered mod, right? And in this situation, mm-hmm. he was sitting there by himself. Obviously, you know, if we, if I was to illustrate what a, a mod person looks like, the person looks, you know, hair is all messed up. They don't necessarily look tidy. Uh, they look like mm-hmm. they've been just out on the streets wandering. So needless to say, Talking this to person was, out. this person was sitting there, you know, looking mod. And I was thinking to myself, like, one of my, my uncles mentioned to my wife, because my wife, this is the first time she saw somebody with a mental illness in Nigeria. And she was like, you know, what's going on? And he was like, you know, my uncle was like, well, he's been pretending to be this for four years. Like, he's just been pretending to be crazy. He said he was crazy and he was pretending to be this for four years. And I was just like, huh. Like, and I was like, you never really know. Like, this person may have had these issues and... It could have been traumatic, trauma-related, I should say. <laughs> There's so many things that trigger people and can cause it that Africans don't tend to look into because right. if it's not God's will, then <laughs> ultimately, or you did something wrong, then you're paying for your sins. Which, how right. do we debunk that? How do we go ahead and start to change the minds of our parents? Because I think those in our generation were more privy to being able to access information how do we change the mindset right. of our of our parents and our older generations who have these beliefs? I think a lot of it is like education and conversation. Um, but the only way that we can have those education and conversation is be able to have um, facts to prove what we're saying, right? Mm. So just researchers conducting research on mental health around um, amongst African immigrants or Africans in general so that we have the facts and the information to prove what we're saying when we're educating them. 
Um, so many times I've worked with um, adolescents or children of African immigrants um, here in America, and I'm trying to explain to them why their child could benefit from therapy or why they're trying to be hospitalized psychiatrically, and they don't get it. They don't want to hear it. And I have to say, you know, your child is about to kill themselves. Is that is that what you want? Mm. And then that's when they say, okay, do whatever you want, as long as she doesn't kill herself. Mm. So when it gets to the point where the person's life is at imminent risk, then they are open to doing something. And I think we just need to do a lot of conver- have a lot of conversation and discussion about how can we help the person, this person, before we get to the point of this person killing themselves. Because at that point, they're kind of like, okay, do whatever it takes to keep my child alive. I don't understand why she's doing this to herself, but I don't want her to die. So if she needs therapy, fine, give it to her. But you know, it's more than that. It takes a, it takes a lot of time for someone to get to the point of being suicidal, to have a suicide plan, or actually have an intent to kill themselves. We need to talk to our parents and even people our age and younger around mental health. There's a lot of people, you you know, in our that are young adults and, and adolescents who have poor mental health literacy. We think because they're in America and you know they went to public schools and they are um, involved in, in in media that they they have good mental health literacy. That's not necessarily true. Many I've heard many of my friends talk about mental health the same way that our parents talk about it. And so I think with research to support what we're hypothesizing about mental health, that will help us to tailor education um, and training for mental health literacy among African immigrants. And one of the interesting things that I just heard you say was um, when you were giving your example is that that parent said, I don't know why she's doing this to herself, mm-hmm. which I thought really just stood out to me because there is this notion that this you know, mental illness is self-inflicted when Mm -hmm. we don't necessarily understand the genesis or the ideology of it, but they seem to be this perceived notion that it's, you know, this person's doing it to herself. You are the one that's causing your own problems. You can't be able to, why are you stressing? What is this? And one of the things that I'm finding out, and I'm even trying to investigate myself personally, is this, the idea of stress. When we talk about what is a huge contributing factor to a lot of the chronic diseases that exist in the you know the, the black population and even the emerging African immigrant population, we tend to realize that there there's stress plays a role some way somehow, right? So we of talk course. about you know, and one of the things I know you you talk about is a, a culturative stress. But I wonder, mm-hmm. and I would like to know your thoughts about. The second generation, the children of African immigrants who say they're stressed, how do they manage stress? You, you gave a situation about a child you know, who wanted to, thought about committing suicide, but how do they go about communicating stress with their, with their parents? How does that normally play out? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what, and as I answer that question, I want to take a step back to the a comment you made earlier about that reflected our people's mentality of this person is doing this to themselves. Um, we know that for for many years, research, research has shown that there's a biopsychosocial model to mental health and mental illness, meaning that they're biological um, contributors, they're psychological contributors, and then they're societal contributions. So a person alone cannot, you know, incite or exacerbate their mental health. The environment plays a, lo- plays a role in that, and then their biological predisposition plays a role in that. So when we talk about um, stress and how people communicate stress, it, you know, you have to start from how do how do parents in the home, how do they present when they're stressed out? Mm. Is it daddy going in the room and closing the door and not talking to anyone? Is it mommy yelling at you and telling you you need to clean? Is it mommy hitting you? Is that how 
stress is communicated in the family because then the child is starting to internalize um, how stress is handled. This is how I handle stress. When I'm stressed out, I lash out at people. When I'm stressed out, I eat. When I'm stressed out, I hit people. Mm. And so people, so this is where like the environment really plays a role in it. So when we talk about this person is doing this to themselves, well, what are you teaching your child from a young age about how stress is managed? What are you teaching your, your um, child about validating the fact that they're stressed out? Mm. You know, how many times have you heard, what do you have to be stressed about? What do you have to be sad about? Mm-hmm. You're just a child. What do you know about stress? Well, children live in a world, and they interact with the world around them. So how can you say a seven-year-old cannot be stressed out? How many times have we heard in the media about seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds taking their own lives? They experience stress, too. So I think we just need to do a very good job of communicating with our children and our peers what it is, what it means to be stressed out, and how do you validate that this person is stressed out, and then how do you manage stress? What are effective ways of managing it? Well, what are unhealthy ways of managing it? Because we know that stress that is not dealt with in a positive way for an extended period of time can exacerbate someone's mental health and can contribute to further mental illness. Yeah. I, um, so what do you think would be considered a... And we'll jump into talking about the African-American community in a bit, but I really want to delve into what your thoughts are regarding stressors. What do you think are common stressors for mm-hmm. for members of the African immigrant community? Sure. So certainly the same stress, the everyday stresses that every anybody else faces. So whether it's work related stressors, family related stressors, relationship related stressors, um, whether it's stresses around just around your own self, like self esteem, my career goals, things like that. So stress that everyone else um experience um, African immigrants are also um, predisposed to. In addition to that, there's a very interesting piece when we talk about African immigrants and stress. Um, I don't have to tell you about the racial climate and political climate in the U.S. around race mm. and around immigration. You combine those together, and those, are, those two are factors or variables that African immigrants have to face. They have to face the stresses related to being black, whether it's police brutality, whether it's discrimination or microaggressions, all um, there are factors that we know um, exacerbate um, individuals' mental health. And then you add on the layer of immigration, and whether it's Trump's rhetoric around um, his anti-immigrant rhetoric, or you know, people who do not, are undocumented or who have DACA status. That adds another layer of stress for African immigrants. So when you think about it, African immigrants are really at a high risk for mental illness and mental. Well, let me. I use the term mental illness loosely. African immigrants are at a high risk for stress, mm-hmm. um, especially this con- this particular kind of stress that we call acculturative stress. Mm-hmm. And what acculturative stress basically is is stress related to um, navigating an immigration experience, navigating being an immigrant. So stress related to coming into a new country and navigating how this new country works. So even if you were born here and your parents weren't, you're still, you still experience a culture of stress because your parents' um, way of parenting you, their parenting style and their knowledge of what it means to be a parent or just to be a being mm. is related to heavily influenced by their identity as an African. 
because that's where they were raised. Mm-hmm. Now you're here, you're born, at, you were born in the U.S., and you're trying to navigate the world as an American, but it may conflict with what your, how your, what messages your parents are sending you and how they're raising you. So that in itself can contribute to a culture of stress. So you don't have to be the person who immigrates to experience a culture of stress. Just being a second-generation immigrant or 1.5-generation immigrant mm-hmm. also puts you at risk of experiencing a culture of stress. Wow. And then now one of the things you talked about when it comes to this acculturated stress that I found very interesting is that whole notion of race related stress. And mm-hmm. now I find that interesting because in past studies, it shows that in the minimal study that's being done as far as stress in African immigrant community, it shows that Africans don't tend to be very interested about race. Right. It's not because mm-hmm. they separate themselves from the African-Americans. So race is not the big issue. It's more about things that are going on back home, things, you know, being able to send money back home, right? And, and and being able to try and sustain that connection. If you if you choose to say sustain that transnational connection, you tend to be worried more about those issues and not necessarily the race-related issue in America because that's not your own. Like, those are not my people. Us, we came here to do something different. Do you think that rhetoric is changing? Do you think now we're focusing more on African, on race-related issues and, and police brutality and things of that nature? You know what? You ask a very good question, and conceptually, it makes sense, right? It makes sense that now that a lot um, African immigrants are a target based on their race, when you think about like police brutality mm-hmm. towards African um, towards Black people in general, mm-hmm. and then when you think about you know the anti-immigrant rhetoric, you know African immigrants are have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. So conceptually, it makes sense that they are now starting to consider themselves as a racial being. Mm-hmm. But we don't know that. And this is where my research um, hopes to further clarify. So my research is seeking to understand how African immigrants understand the concept of race. How do they identify racially? You know, typically Africans identify based on their nationality, their tribe, their their, um, other heritage besides race. Because race is a unique concept to people who live in Africa, except for, you know, South Africa. Um, So we don't really know what the research says about it. However, we know that the notion of race has been um, huge, largely um, implicated in the mental health of African Americans, in the mental health of Asian Americans, and in the mental health of Latinx community. Mm -hmm. So pretty much all immigrant groups, um, for all immigrant groups, research has shown that the issue of race has had both negative and positive implications. So it wouldn't surprise me to hear that African immigrants are not exempt that they are also implicated in the negative and positive influence of race and just navigating race in the U.S. So now, what do you think is the relationship? How would you define the, the way stress is perceived in the African-American community compared to the African immigrant community? You know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think when it comes to African immigrants and how they perceive stress, I don't know. I haven't done a lot of research on that. Mm-hmm. But I imagine that for adults, it's mostly related to economic standing, mm-hmm. you know, stress related to work, stress related to career, and stress related to raising a family, including family back home. Whereas, you know, African, for African Americans, there are a whole host of studies that have shown, you know, what contributes to stress. Um, the race and ethnic identity piece is a huge addition to it. When we talk about socialization messages, which is basically the messages that you receive about what it means to be a member of your race or ethnicity, we know that that's also implicated in how they um, perceive stress and how they experience stress. 
Um, so I'm, I'm assuming that you're talking about the race piece because, you yeah. know, how stress influenced them is basically how stress influenced everyone else with the added layer of race and ethnicity. I hope what I, what I, what I, no, 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 no. I, I mean, thank you for answering that. I was just trying to mm-hmm. just give you time to kind of pause and, and I thought you were going to keep going. But, um, so I was thinking when it comes to just stress and managing stress and what would you think, or what would you suggest as culturally appropriate ways to manage stress in these mm-hmm. respective communities? Specifically, you can, you can d- dive into the African immigrant community as well. Yeah. I think the way that you cope with stress depends on the source of the stress, right? So there may be some like universal um, coping strategies for managing stress, whether it's taking time out, speaking to friends about it, relaxing, whatever it is. There are some universal um, coping strategies that people use. However, it's important to make sure that the way that you're coping is congruent with the source of the stress. So if if the stress is related to work, for example, you want to make sure your coping strategies um, are work-focused. So whether it's, you know, I need to work less or whether it's, I need to find another job to make more money, whether it's I need to time out away from work. It's important to make sure that the strategy for coping is linked to the source of the stress. I always recommend therapy. And I know that, you know, for our community, this is taboo. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to be mad or suicidal or depressed or anxious to seek therapy. Therapy is so useful for growth. Just like getting in touch with your inner self, understanding yourself better. Even if you feel like I'm the healthiest person in the world, therapy can help you understand how you function, how you relate to other people. So I always recommend therapy as a strategy for managing stress because sometimes we keep doing the same things over and over again. We are like, why are we still stressed out? And we start to, you know, come to the terms that, you know, stress is just a part of life. When no, it could just be something that you're, you know, if you, the source of the stress could be in the foundations of how you function. It could be in just the foundations of how you relate to people, whether I relate to people as a listener or whether I relate to people as always the helper and take on other people. Therapy can help you better understand how you are functioning so that you can better attend to your stressors. That way you can identify ways to cope with it. So that's one way that I always um, recommend for coping with stress. Again, one, uh, a method of stress, one method of stress that works for you may not necessarily work for me. So it's important to know what works for you. Sometimes talking to people about the stressor is helpful. Sometimes you need to talk to people as a distraction and not talk about the stressor. Sometimes you need to find pro- you need to find problem solving strategies for the stressor. Sometimes you, it may be a stressor that you have no control over, and it's just a matter of coping. And you know, yoga and mindfulness practices can be useful for that. So it really depends on the stressor. And I know that I'm not giving you a clear answer, and that's just because it's just not it's just not a clear way to cope with stress. It's unique to the individual, is unique to the context, and it's unique to the stressor. Absolutely. And I mean, but therapy even, will always help to therapy will always be a good place to start. And I think you, you answered, if not my question, I know you answered a lot of questions for other people who are listening to the show. So I think my, I've got a couple more questions and I'll wrap it up with you. But one of the questions, one of the things that you mentioned was the whole notion of therapy being something that people are scared of. And I think one of the things that we need to do as a as an African community, as a black community in general, is to show that therapy is not scary. And I think you mentioned that 
it's like, even if you're healthy as, you know, the healthiest person in the world, it's still like going and working out and exercising your brain and exercising your mind and, and exercising your ability to be able to get in touch with yourself. It's not something that people should be scared of, but I think that's something that someone like you, um, who's doing research in this area, knows that there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it's important work that needs to be done in this particular community in order to really make significant progress in improving the mental health um, in African immigrants. Now, my last question for you was, why is it that they don't, there isn't that much research in African immigrant mental health? Why is it not such yeah. a discussed topic? It's discussed in other um, racial ethnic populations, but not ours. Why right. is that? Well, I think first and foremost, a lot of researchers do something what we call me search, which is research mm. that's inspired by your own lived experience. But, um, you know, we tend to develop interest, research interests based on your own life experiences, things that you're curious about, things that you find fascinating. And, you know, it may just be that there are not a lot of African um, immigrant researchers in the field of mental health. We tend to be doctors and lawyers and engineers, but not a lot of us are not in the mental health field. Um, I think... The entire time I've been in grad school, I have not, there's not one African in my program. I have finally connected with other African immigrants who are in mental health, and they're kind of dispersed all over, but there's not a lot of us. And so if, if there, the more of us there are in the mental health field, the more of us will make it our responsibility to do research on our people. You know, when you think about the literature on Asian Americans in mental health and Latinx communities in mental health, they're mostly driven by Latinx and Asian American researchers. And so we have to take it upon ourselves to answer questions for our communities, and which is why I'm here, which is why this is a topic that's very passionate for me, and which is why you're here doing what you're doing, because it's something that you take that's personal and you have passion about. Yeah, I really like the I really like the notion that you the little term you just brought up called me search. And I think for our community, I really do hope that we can turn it from me search to we search and not and I, I mean it sounds kind of corny, but I do think that once we're able to have a more community based participatory type of involvement in research by African immigrants, especially in this area, I think it is in it make a lot of uh, it pay a lot of dividends. And I also think you brought up a very interesting point that um, not to deviate from the topic too much, but I think it's fascinating that, you know, a lot of us are not in, you know, health research, uh, mental health research. A lot of us do go to be, you know, doctors, lawyers, engineers, those, you know, quote, quote, powerhouse um, professions. But I do think now there needs to be more of a an advocacy or even a, an encouragement by parents to their children, second generation or whatever, to get more into research and, and start focusing into getting your PhDs and doing more health-based research, because I think that is really where you start to have people like us who can continue to speak for our communities um, mm -hmm. in order to truly make the difference. Because if not, then you know you tend to find yourself doing other people's work and working under other people's agenda, and you really can't speak for your own experiences because um, that's not what's funding you. Right. So right. Um, now well, that's well, not where the money is at. Exactly. And when we think about why our, our families come to the U.S., it's for economic advancement. Mm -hmm. And there's no money in research. Yeah. You don't make millions of it during research. So how can and especially around mental health? You know, I still get asked, you still work with those crazy people. Wow. And time and time again, I have to give them a lecture. They're not crazy people. What are you talking about? Don't say that. That's condescending. Um, and so our, they don't get it. So how can they encourage you to do something that they don't understand? 
how can they encourage you to do something that doesn't make money? And then you also brought up a good point about participation in research. Again, we just, uh, you know, and I'm speaking from my perspective as a researcher and as a student, we don't value research. I, I don't know about your experience with conducting your dissertation and getting participants, but I've had a hard time getting participants. You know, they will tell me, oh, it's too long. Oh, I have to answer all these questions. Can I just lie? No. <laughs> you can't lie. You can't make this up. I can't make this up. There's a purpose behind it. And so just encouraging all folks out there to, to all your listeners, when the research or survey piece come by you, please participate. It helps researchers, your doctors that are that are helping you, they need the research to, to tailor their interventions when they're treating you. A lot of the times when African immigrants are included as a part of a research, they're um, listed under the category of black meaning African immigrants, I mean African Americans, but we know that the, the cultural differences in Africans and African immigrants, there are a lot of implications for that. Mm-hmm. So what works for African immigrants doesn't necessarily work for African Americans. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's necessarily helpful for African immigrants to be lumped in research funding for, for African Americans. So if you get it out there and Complete that survey that gets sent to you. Indicate that you're Nigerian, Oganian, or of African ethnicity. We can start to get more um, research findings that are tailored to our people. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I do think that um, one of the works that I'm aspiring to put together is to truly explore data collection um, and doing research in the African-American community. Because I think the, the methodologies that we use these westernized methodology or methodological Thank approaches you. that we use you know IRB and all that we understand what it's for and we understand who is protecting but the way we conduct it becomes very very challenging when you're trying to navigate these um these cultural spaces that we have in the african immigrant community which you kind of already illustrated um, that makes it very challenging to try and get appropriate rich data to utilize um, for promoting or trying to propose interventions that will benefit them in the long run. So sometimes, you know, they don't really see the big picture like we do um, as, as researchers, but I do think that, you know, your, your public service announcement should be heard and will be heard um, to those who are listening to this show. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, I'd be remiss because um, I think it's important to also bring in one um, other piece when it comes to stress. What about religion? And like, for example, for someone like you, who you know, you identify as a Muslim woman, and I, for example, I'm a Christian, you know, but I have Muslim family member. My mother is a Muslim. How do you think, you know, being a Muslim or even being a Christian, how uh, stress perceived, mental health, um, does the religion play a fact a, a role or not? Dr. Lambert, you're going to need another hour session for that one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save it for part two. We'll save it for part two. Just give me, give me the preview. I mean, give us the preview. Yes, essentially, you know, it depends on your religious or spirituality level, and it depends on your, the spiritual guidance you have from your priest or imam, you know. It depends on the messages that you're receiving. I know I'm saying a lot of it depends, but it really depends. If you're getting messages about, actually, let me take a step back. My master's thesis was on um, mental health problem identification among Muslim immigrants. Uh, my participants were mainly Arab um, immigrants. And time and time again, they shared with me that when their initial symptoms started to develop, 
parents or priests or imams will open up a Quran or a Bible page and uh, or a Quran um, and say, "Read this; it will make you feel better." Mm-hmm. Time and time again, they would be given a verse and say, "Read this to make you feel better." And this person is wondering, "Hey, why am I not feeling better?" It wasn't up until the point where the person started to threaten suicide when the person's life was at risk that they say, okay, fine, let's take you to a mental health professional. Wow. So our religion and spirituality really influence how we conceptualize mental health, which influences how the approach we take for treatment. Man, I mean, I think we just covered a lot of really, really good content. And I just, the, 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 the research is ongoing, right? Is your, is your project still ongoing or is it? Oh, oh yes, I'm still collecting data. I gave myself January 31st deadline, but I think there's so much more data to be collected. Be so like, that's tomorrow. <laughs> I know, right? I'm pushing <laughs> it back to mid-February, but this sister is trying to graduate in May. So yes. all the listeners out there, please complete the link if you haven't. Um, yes. And I will be more than happy to share my results with you so that you can share it with your listeners. But mm-hmm. yeah, the research is ongoing. And even after graduation, the goal is to be in an academic position so that research like this can continue. It needs to continue, and we're going to make sure that it continues. So, yes, um, if it's ongoing, I got the link. I'm going to post it up on the page. Um, so everyone will spread the word, and we'll make sure that we get you out of that joint. Because doing your dissertation, it's one of the best, worst experiences ever. But that's your exit ticket. And we, need to, <laughs> we need to get you out in this professor position so you can start inspiring these other, these other future upcoming researchers. Hopefully, they'll be second-generation, third-generation Africans. All right. So I'm I'm very hopeful. I think there's a lot of interest out there. People just don't know how to get into it. We've, we've just gotten so educated by you. I'm going to just say, Dr. Kabiru, we're claiming it. Alhamdulillah, we're claiming it. I'm claiming it. it oh, I'm thank claiming it. you. I'm claiming it. Man, thank you so much for joining us on My Blackest Transnational and for blessing us with our first interview topic ever. I know that a lot of people are going to truly enjoy this um, because I have people asking me about, what about mental health? What about mental health? So now y'all have it, and I hope that we can be able to um, inspire a lot of great, healthy discussion about mental health promotion in our respective communities. So, sis... Thank you so much for joining the call. I know you got baby boy over there in your hand. You still got him? You still been holding him all the while, or you just? No, no, no. He's with daddy right now. This I was is about time. to be like, man, I need, I need to follow him. Like that boy gets no, a silent this ninja. This is mommy time. Self care is important, right? Yeah, this yeah. Self care is not selfish. So, no. yeah. But thanks. Well, sis, thank for... you for having me. I am happy to be a part of this, and I'm happy to be your first ever interview. Yes, yes. And I hope that um, we can be so, able to join yeah, again. I'm excited. Thank you so much, and um, have a good one, sis. Thank you. You too. Stay warm, but I'm pretty sure I should be saying that to myself. Yes, please stay warm two times to you. Back to Senda. (laughs) Thank you. Have a good day. All right. You too, sis. Man, that was such a great interview. Um, Really hope you all enjoyed it. That's going to do it for us for this episode of My Black is Transnational. Check us out. Kalechi.lamberts at gmail.com. Follow me on IG at blacktransnational underscore. Um, Really appreciate you all listening. Please make sure to leave a feedback on Anchor, subscribe, 
rate, review the podcast. All that information truly helps. Um, it's been fun. It's been uh, just a fun time. My name is Dr. Kalechi Bay Lamberts. My black is transnational. And I hope by the end of this, I'm sure by the end of this, yours will be too. Peace.